0: Welcome to this podcast from Christchurch London. For more information and resources, please go to Christchurchlondon.org. Which is found in 1 Samuel 16, verses 1 to 13. So you can either find that in your Bible or the words will come up on the screen. The Lord said to Samuel... you are to anoint for me the one that I indicate. Samuel did what the Lord said. And when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town trembled when they met him. They asked, do you come in peace? Samuel replied, yes, in peace. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come to sacrifice with me. Then Jesse called Abinadab and had him pass in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Jesse then had Shammah pass by, but Samuel said, nor has the Lord chosen this one. Jesse had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord has not chosen these. So he asked Jesse, are these all the sons that you have? There is still a youngest, Jesse answered. He's tending the sheep. Samuel said, send for him, we will not sit down until he arrives. So he sent for him and had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him, this is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. Samuel then went to Ramah would you we please welcome Liam come to who Liam as he comes to the stage to teach us about
1: this thank you. well thank you good morning it is great to be with you and it's great to be starting this series on King David and we'll be Looking at his story from 1 and 2 Samuel right through the summertime, and I think there'll be loads of lessons we can learn from his life. And today, the passage we just heard read comes from chapter 16, and so I'm going to have to do a bit of a recap really to kind of get you up to speed on chapters 1 to 15. That'll only take about an hour or so, but uh, then we'll get into the passage. And then, actually, in the Hebrew Bible, 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel were one book together, and David really is the hero of the story, but he doesn't come in until quite far through it. And the whole story begins with a lady called Hannah. And I want to start with her, really, and just kind of unpack a bit of the run-up towards David. The whole book, 1 and 2 Samuel together, takes about 150 years. It covers a long period of history. And it begins with this lady who was unable to have children, just crying out to God, God, would you give me a child? And God miraculously provides a child for her, and, um, and she sings and she celebrates and she dedicates this child to God. Now, there are two really weird things about what Hannah says in chapters 1 and 2. And I just want to unpack those because they, they just seem incidental, but actually I think they're the key to understanding a lot of what goes on in this book. The first thing, weird thing is this, the name she chooses for the child. In the Old Testament, the name you would choose for a child would be hugely significant because it would say something about what you believed the child was to do, the promises over his or her life, the things you hoped this child would become. And Hannah said this. Hannah named him Samuel saying, because I asked the Lord for him. So you would expect that the name Samuel would mean something like asked for or a gift from God or something like that. That's not actually what the name Samuel means at all. In Hebrew, the word Shem means name, and El means God. So Shem El, or Samuel, means name of God. That's actually not at all related to what it says here. Hannah called him Samuel because she asked for him, but that doesn't bear any resemblance to the name he gets. Actually, the Hebrew word for asked for is the word Shal. Just put a pin in that for a moment. The second weird thing about this story is that when Hannah dedicates the child, she sings this song, which is not weird in and of itself, except that the final line of the song, she says this, God will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, which is really odd because there was no king. (laughs) I mean, there was no king in Israel. There never had been a king in Israel. So Hannah misnames her child and then sings a song about a non-existent king and this is the triumphant opening of this book. It's really weird. It doesn't make any sense. Fast forward six chapters and these two riddles start to come together where we find that Samuel has been ruling over the people as a prophet and as a judge, but he's getting old and the people come to him and they say, we need a replacement. They ask for a king. And suddenly you think, oh, those two things that didn't make sense in Hannah's song are now coming together when the people ask for a king. Actually, ask for is polite. They demand a king. They say, give us a king like all the other nations have. And Samuel warns them against it. And it says the people refuse to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. And the Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. So the people ask for, they shall a king. And what do they get? They get a king whose name is Saul. Shall. They get what they ask for, but God seems unhappy about this whole situation, and the problem was not that God didn't want them to have a king. Actually, for centuries, he had promised them a king in passages like Deuteronomy 49, uh, sorry, uh, Genesis 49, Deuteronomy 17, but he'd been very clear that when he would give them a king, they should look for a very particular set of things in that king. Deuteronomy 17 says, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you and have taken possession of it and settled in it, and you say, let us have a king over us, Like all the nations around us, be sure to appoint over you a king that the Lord your God chooses. Yet the people fail to do this. Actually, they have got an asked for leader in Samuel. And it's God's plan through Samuel to identify God's chosen king. But the people reject Samuel and ultimately they therefore reject the means by which God is bringing his choice of king into the world. And God says this to Samuel. Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It's not you, Samuel, that they've rejected. They have rejected me as their king. At the heart of Israel's issue, it was that they wanted a king, but they didn't want God as their king, or they didn't want God's choice as their king. And so they get what they deserve. They get a guy who bears the name of asked for, Charles, Saul, and yet really he isn't at all up to the job. In fact, if you read the rest of Deuteronomy 17, it explains that they should not choose a king who amasses mighty armies or amasses wealth or thinks he is better than anyone else. And if you read chapters 1 to 15, you find that is an accurate depiction of what Saul is like. He is not suitable to be God's king. In fact, the very first thing... Uh, In fact, I'll come back to that in a minute. But we get to chapter 15 and Saul really shows how deeply, tragically unable he is to lead God's people. I'd really recommend you read the first 15 chapters. But Saul gets to this point where God tells him to go and to fight a battle. But when he has won the battle, he should not take for himself any of the cattle or any of the sheep. This is what happens. It says that he kept the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. And this tells us something about the kind of king Saul is. He is the kind of king who cares about amassing things for himself. He looks at the weak things, the unvaluable things, and he says, well, we can destroy those, but anything of value, anything that looks good on the outside, he keeps it to himself. And the very next thing he does really seals the deal. He goes to a place called Mount Carmel, which was a site where many people have worshipped many gods over many centuries, and there he builds an altar. Who to? To the god who's just given him this victory? No, he built it to himself. In that moment, he sets himself up as a rival God, and God thinks, I've had enough. And he sends Samuel to him in chapter 15 to uh, declare this judgment. And Samuel says, you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. And we're told that the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So to summarize chapters 1 to 15, it's a story of Hannah asking God for a child. God gives her this asked for leader who is his gateway to bringing in the chosen king. But the people reject Samuel and reject God and they ask for, they Sha'al, a king of their own. They end up with Saul who is tragically unable to lead them. And God rejects Saul, which brings us to the passage that Joe just read. But God sends Samuel with a message. He goes to a town called Bethlehem, meets a guy called Jesse, and he's told to say this, I have chosen one of his sons to be king. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice. I'll show you what to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate. And you get this sense, ah, the whole thing is getting back on track. The king that God promised in Genesis 49 and Deuteronomy 17, the one that he chose, is finally going to come. And so Samuel arrives And he speaks, and the key verse in this passage, I think, is 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It's the one that we'll really focus in on today. It says this, The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I want to unpack that verse this morning. Let me just change David's for a second. David Brooks, the journalist and author, has written a brilliant book on character. It's called The Road to Character. And in it, he introduces these two approaches to virtue, which I think are really, really helpful. He talks about resume virtues and eulogy virtues. Resume virtues, he says, are the things that um, are external to you and they make you marketable. It's your skills, it's your strengths. Whereas eulogy virtues are deeper. Sometimes they are hidden, sometimes they're unseen. But they're the things that people will talk about at your funeral. How kind you were, how generous you were, how faithful you were. Those sorts of things. Now, if I were to ask you, which of these do you think are most important? I imagine we would get some consensus in the room. In fact... Hands up, show of hands, who thinks that eulogy virtues are ultimately the most important of those two things? Okay, most hands in the room. Who thinks that resume virtues are the most important of those two things? Not a single hand. In the South, we had one hand, and then he quickly looked embarrassed. (laughs) I think we would all agree that eulogy virtues are most important, but David Brooks says, how much time do you actually spend investing in them? I think we spend way more of our time investing in the resume virtues than the eulogy virtues. In fact, he said that the whole of our world is really oriented towards resume virtues. Our education system, public discourse, the things we seem to value are way more oriented towards the resume stuff than the eulogy stuff, the stuff that's truly deeply about us. He says most people have a stronger plan for how to progress in their career than they do for how to develop deep character. David Brooks quotes a rabbi called Joseph Soloveitchik who wrote a book called The Lonely Man of Faith. And in it, he takes this idea from Genesis 1 and 3 and extrapolates from there. And he says there are essentially two types of human, which he calls Adam 1 and Adam 2. Adam 1, uh, next slide please, Adam 1 is the resume self, the external focused Adam. He wants to build, create and win. Adam 2 is the eulogy self who wants to embody moral qualities. He cares about the internal life, not just about doing good, but about being good. Adam 1 lives to build and create and win, whereas Adam 2 lives in obedience to some transcendent truth. If Adam 1 wants to conquer the world, Adam 2 lives with this sense of calling, I think I'm here to serve the world. Adam 1 savors personal accomplishment, whereas Adam 2 is willing on occasions to lay down his self and actually not achieve so much for the good of others. The primary question for Adam 1 is, why do things work? Why? So that Adam 1 can master them, control them, use them for his gain. Adam 2 asks, why are things here? Why are we here? What is the purpose for which we were created Adam 1, Brooks says, lives by the straightforward logic of economics. Input leads to output, effort to reward. You should pursue self-interest, maximize utility, and impress the world. Whereas Adam 2 lives by a different moral code, a moral logic, an inverse logic, not an economic one. Adam too believes you have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside of yourself to gain strength within yourself. You have to conquer the desire to get what you want. You have to, In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. And I think the story of David and Saul is the story of these two Adams. I think David very much at this point in the story reflects something of that Adam 2, eulogy self, whereas Saul seems to be way more like the Adam 1, resume self, focused on the exterior. And I think this concept gives us a helpful way to understand what is going on in this passage and actually in a lot of David's story. We could paraphrase paraphrase verse 7, I think, to say, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the resume virtues, but the Lord looks at the eulogy virtues. So how does this help us to unpick what is going on in this passage? Well, I think, as I've said, that we live in a world that seems to prioritise resume virtues. But that's not a new thing. I think that's always been the case. I think it's definitely the case in this passage. If you read it through, you find that almost to a person, everyone is obsessed with the external things. Everyone has a measure for success that looks very different to what God is thinking of and looking for. The people, they ask for a king. And more particularly, they ask for a king like that of the nearby nations. It's like they've looked round at the other powers of the day and thought, we want what they've got. They've got a king. We're not happy with God. We want what they've got. We want a king who is mighty, who can lead us into battle. And so they go for a king who is tall and strong and handsome and powerful because they think that is what ultimately matters. And the king they end up with is tragically incapable of leading them. You know the first thing we learn about Saul is this. It says Kish had a son named Saul, as handsome a young man as could be found anywhere in Israel, and he was a head taller than anywhere else, anyone else. Now the donkeys belonging to Saul's father Kish were lost. That's a bit of a weird thing to find out about Saul. Like, the first thing you learn is he's tall, he's handsome, he's attractive, and he's lost some donkeys. <laughs> what, what does that have to do with any? I'm not aware that a monarch, a major part of a monarch's role, is looking after donkeys. Like, like how does that mean that he is or isn't qualified? Actually, I think it's hugely significant. Because in the ancient world, one of the key metaphors for a king was a shepherd. One who looked after simple animals. And so here we see that Saul looks great on the outside, but he fundamentally is unable to look after simple animals. He is no way equipped to lead the people of God. We know that right from the beginning. And yet Saul himself seems more fixated on his resume virtues than his eulogy virtues. He builds statues to his own honour. He takes the best cattle and slaughters anything that looks weak or unpleasant or not valuable. It shows us where his heart is. Jesse is the same. I mean, Jesse brings out all of his sons except one. I mean, Samuel says, bring out all of your kids. And he parades them in front of him. And Samuel's like, not that one, not that one, not that one, not that one. He gets to the end and he goes, are you sure you don't have any other kids? And he's like, oh yeah, I do have this other one. He's out there in the field. And it's like he's completely forgotten or deliberately overlooked David. It's like he's thought, okay, we're looking for some kingly material here where I could see that in some of my sons, but not that one. He's just out there with the sheep. And so he doesn't even think to bring him in. And Samuel says, bring him in. And he can kind of imagine him reluctantly going, all right, we'll go and get the shepherd. And he brings him in. Imagine being overlooked by your own father. Yet that's exactly what happens here because Jesse has an Adam-one mindset. Spot the contrast. You've got tall, attractive, strong Saul who's fundamentally hopeless at looking after simple animals. And you've got this David, who actually is still attractive. It says it in the passage. Resume virtues are important. External things are important. They're just not the most important thing. You've got this tall guy who can't look after simple donkeys, and yet you've got David, who is faithfully looking after the sheep. Which one is better equipped to be God's king? Samuel himself, the great prophet, the great man of God, the one person you think he should get it right, like he's made his career out of hearing God accurately, he gets it wrong. The passage begins with God having to rebuke him, saying, why are you mourning this king that I have rejected? And then God says, go and anoint a new king. And he's terrified. What if Saul hears? What if this kind of mighty Adam one of a man hears? Won't he kill me? And he even considers disobeying God because he's fixated on the external things. He stands there. He looks at a bunch of sons. What does he do? The first one, Eliab, comes forth. And he looks at him and he says, surely the Lord's anointed stands before the Lord. And he's wrong. Eliab may have been great on the outside, but he's not chosen by God. I find this incredibly sobering. Not one person in this passage gets it right. Not even the great man of God. I find that incredibly sobering. It is so easy to see things through the wrong lens, to measure success by the wrong way, and ultimately to miss out on what God is doing. If we buy the idea that the most important thing is what we can see on the outside, we may well end up with us all when God wants to give us a David. I find that incredibly sobering. Let me ask you this. When you look at others, do you make judgments on them based on the things you can see on the outside? How successful, how sociable, how effective, how eloquent they might be. Is that how you decide whether to spend time with people? To invite them into your social circle, to build community with them, to invest in them as leaders, to take risks in them? Is that how you make those decisions? Flip it the other way. When you present yourself to others, what is it that you ultimately want them to see first and foremost? Is it your glossy exterior? Do you, in your conversation, just subtly drop hints about how socially conscious you are and how culturally aware you are and just throw in a couple of your achievements and, because you want people to think well of you? Actually, if that means lying and covering up some of the more frail, more vulnerable sides of your character. When you think about work, or your things you want to achieve in life, or your leadership, do you tend to measure based on the external things? Or do you rather think about what kind of person you're becoming, what kind of character is being developed in you? Do you ever, God forbid, do this with church as well? You know, when you have that kind of post-church conversation and people say, oh, how was church today? Are the first things that come out of your mouth to do with the set list that the band chose or whether it was your favorite preacher or uh, whether the coffee was to your liking, whether you met people you liked with or you had to have awkward conversations with people you didn't want to talk to? Are these the kind of things that come out of your mouth? If so, if so, you may well be looking at things more with the eyes of Saul, Jesse and Samuel than the Lord. And I'm preaching to myself here, to be clear. I get this wrong all the time. I am sure that there are people I have hurt or upset because I've overlooked them, because I've been wowed by the Saul's and the Eliab's and I've missed the David's. And if that's you, I am incredibly sorry. I'm sure that people do it all the time because it is incredibly difficult to see things as God does, but it's vital that we learn to. Because if we don't, we will end up measuring things with a level of success that God doesn't really care all that much about at all. And we may well miss what God is doing as a result. This becomes even more sobering when you fast forward a few thousand years, where you find that the very thing people did to David, they then did to an extreme with the son of David, where they ultimately rejected God's chosen king, Jesus Christ. You read the ancient writers from the first couple of centuries, and they (coughs) describe Jesus in not very flattering ways. Celsus wrote that Jesus was ugly and small. Early Gnostic writers called him bald-headed and small with no good looks at all. Andrew of Crete suggested he may have had a crooked back and been unable to walk properly. Now, actually, we don't know that any of these things are accurate at all. Chances are they were things written to discredit Jesus in a culture that really valued external looks. But Isaiah says something not at all dissimilar when he prophetically describes what Jesus would be like. He said, he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their, hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. I think this is tragic. That when God sends his chosen one, his chosen king, Jesus, he is missed by most people. People hide their faces from him, they ultimately reject him and put him on a cross, And yet, Jesus was like David in so many ways. Born in a backwater town called Bethlehem, under the rule of a tyrant king, overlooked by everyone. And yet, he was the good shepherd, the true king, the anointed one who reconciles the world to God through his death and his resurrection. If you are exploring faith today, if you are trying to get your head around what God is like and what Jesus is like, my appeal to you is this. Don't look for the wrong kind of God. Don't look for a God who seems glossy on the outside, but there's not a lot of substance beneath him. And don't overlook Jesus, because his story seems so unlike what successful stories look like in our world. You see, if you have an Adam one mentality, if you are looking for resume virtues, then a guy that hung out in humble places with lowly people and who was executed on a cross will not seem like a success to you. For an Adam-one mindset, the cross is the ultimate failure. But if you are able to see through it and see it as God does, you will see it's also the most beautiful victory. Because it is through Jesus giving up his life like a shepherd laying down his life for a sheep that he is changing everything and making this world new. Don't miss that. (laughs) And if you are exploring things about faith, if you have questions about Jesus, we would love to talk to you. Do you come and speak to me at the end or speak to a friend you've come with or a member of the welcome team or prayer team? We'd love to talk to you about Jesus. Both the stories of David and Jesus show us that God sees things as others don't. The Lord looks at the heart. And if that is the case, then I think not only do we need to learn to see things as, as God does, we also need to learn to invest in the things that he cares about. We need to invest in the heart. We need to learn to invest in the eulogy virtues. In a world that so prioritizes an Adam one way of living, we need to take the counterintuitive approach of investing in the slower way, the hidden things. We need to invest in character. We need to invest in the heart. One of my favourite things, uh, being a kid when we would go on holiday, was just building sandcastles. I loved building sandcastles. And my dad was like a machine at building sandcastles. it's absolutely amazing. And so he and my brother and I would go out and we'd build them. And basically we'd spend the whole day, because we had no friends, we'd build these massive sandcastles. It'd be absolutely enormous. Here's a picture of one of them. Uh, or what? Um, well, here's a picture of what one of them could have looked like. <laughs> I, uh, I couldn't find any. But um, in my mind, it, it looks actually even greater than even greater than that. I'm sure they did. I, I can't imagine I've exaggerated it. But um, we build these incredible sandcastles and they'd be really intricate. They'd have like bridges and tunneled out bits and moats and they'd just be amazing. We spent the whole day. Actually, it was quite geeky. So the night before, sometimes we would plan out these <laughs> sandcastles. Why am I telling you this? And we take them down and we like weigh them down with rocks and then we try and turn this thing into reality, just looking at the plans. And my mum was like, you're going to be an architect. And I was like, I am going to be an architect until I realised there was more to it than just tapping buildings out of buckets and I'd just let that dream go but this was one of my favourite things to do, building these sandcastles. One of the most frustrating things was the end of the day when the water starts to approach. And in case you hadn't guessed our castle but our castles were impressive and actually people did come from other parts of the beach to come uh, not for miles around just like nearby <laughs> word got out <laughs> before social media they were sending pigeons for smoke signals all that kind of. thing. people would come and they would stand there and they'd watch our sand castle as the waves came in just waiting to see how long it took before it fell down which is a bit morbid actually but people would gather around and look at this thing and I'd be like maybe this one will survive maybe this one's strong enough and of course the water would get close and even if it couldn't touch the top of the the sandcastle, it was still a road at the bottom, and the whole thing would just collapse every single day. I found this incredibly frustrating. And so one day my dad and I had this brilliant plan. We got up really early because we'd spotted that in the beach there was this massive rock that was sort of protruding from the sand. And we went down before anyone else had got there and we covered the whole thing in this thick layer of sand. And then we went back to our our hotel. And then we came down later when everyone else was coming down to the beach and we're like, oh, I think we'll choose here to build our sandcastle. And we built this enormous sandcastle on this hidden rock. And it just looked incredible. Got to the end of the day. Everyone was crowding around. The waters are coming in standing there thinking how long is it going to last my dad said let's go we packed all our stuff and we left and I I really remember this I remember exactly where we were we're standing there at this car park looking down at these people with the water just lapping around their feet going why is it not falling down and we're standing there thinking yes we have a secret that they do not know (laughs) there is a rock solid inner it's cheating actually but go with me on the metaphor we have this rock solid inner core to this sandcastle that meant it outlasted any of the others on the beach Man looks at the sandcastle outside, the exterior. The Lord looks at the rocky interior. There was something about that castle that meant it was able to withstand the waves of life. It does not matter in the end how tall or how beautifully crafted or how intricately honed the sandcastle of your life is. If there isn't a rock-solid core, the waves will take it down. Which is why the Bible says it matters that we invest in the stuff in here. Proverbs four says, the, um, blah, 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 what does it say above all else guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it." The decisions we make in here, in the secret place, inevitably flow out into what becomes visible. So invest, the Bible says, in what is hidden, what is in here, what is at your core. Everything we do flows out of the place where our character is formed and kept. Jesus said something similar. He said this, A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. This is a vivid picture. Our mouths are like an overflow, where what is stored in here just comes out in those natural moments. If you are storing up good things in here, good will come out in those moments of pressure. Those moments you're not prepared for. If you're making loads of compromises here, what is naturally going to come out in those moments you can't anticipate is not likely to be healthy, Jesus says. A friend of mine who um, leads a church in Manchester told me a story recently about a guy in his congregation. He was, um, he was doing really well in his job. He'd been progressing up the ranks. He was called into his boss's office one day, and his boss sat him down and said to him, uh, I want you to lie for me so that we can close this particular deal. And he was very clear what he was asking him to do. He was like, I know this is wrong. I know this is not true. But I want you to speak to these people. I want you to tell them these things. I want you to mislead them in these ways so that we can close this deal and be a big success. And this guy was just sat there thinking, man, this is a horrible position to be put in. Actually, I suppose, if you care more about resume virtues than eulogy virtues, and if you think what really matters is closing the deal and being thought of well by your boss, then maybe it's an easy decision. <laughs> maybe you go with the lies. But this guy was a follower of Jesus and thought, yeah, but there's something else going on here because the Lord sees the heart. And so he didn't want to make a compromise there that he couldn't get back from. Like, I mean, you can hardly go, no, I'm not going to lie, six months down the line, when he goes, maybe you did that time, didn't you? So he knew this was a watershed moment for him, and this is his response. He said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to lie for you. Because if I lie for you, it won't be long until I lie to you. I thought that was a brilliant response. I remember, not that my boss has asked me to lie. But, <laughs> sorry, but I remember that. I think it's a brilliant, brilliant response. Because he recognizes what Jesus is saying here. Start making compromises here. And it won't be long before what comes out is more and more toxic. I won't lie for you because it won't be long because I'll, until I lie to you you. That's guarding your heart. That's saying no further. I am putting a rock-solid core in here. Even if it makes it a difficult path to walk, I am not giving up on what is right at my heart. I think that's a brilliant example. The Italian poet Pietro Arantino famously wrote this, I am indeed a king because I know how to rule myself. I love that quote. Leadership starts in here. You know, it's not the number of people that you lead that makes you a leader. David was way more of a king whilst looking after sheep in a field than Saul was when sitting in a throne looking out over all of Israel under his command. Because leadership starts in here. It's about leading yourself. It's about investing in your heart. In fact, we are told that when God rejected Saul, the Spirit of the Lord departed from him. Now the Spirit of God is his presence, his empowering presence, who enables us to live holy and effective lives. And we're told that the Spirit left Saul but came upon David. So it says in verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. And you'll know if you know the story, and we'll see this over the next few weeks. Actually, there was about 15 years that took place from that anointing with oil to him becoming king. 15 years is a long time to know that I've been called by God to lead these people. I've got the spirit of the Lord on me. I've got the anointing oil on me. Fifteen years he had to guard his heart through all sorts of adversity. And through this period that we're going to look at over the next few weeks, Saul just gets progressively worse as he gets caught in this sort of downward spiral of wickedness while David actually grows and grows and grows into more of the king God intended him to be. It's all because of the power of the spirit in his life. I really like, actually, can I have the next slide? Uh, Our designer, Tom, um, put this together, which is the sort of logo for the series, and we were talking about it. I really love this. I think it really captures something brilliant about this passage. You've got the V being like the lip of this jug, just pouring out the oil. And as the oil hits the ground, it splashes back, and the splash makes... The shape of a crown, and he said what he was trying to capture was that sense that the oil of the Lord, the Spirit of the Lord, results in a growing sense of kingliness and stature and power. I think that's really beautiful, and I think that's exactly what is going on here in this passage. You know what? There are few things more dangerous than a Christian leader who has a title but does not have the Spirit of God, and there are few things more beautiful than someone who is full of the Spirit of God. And who may not have the title, but is working away faithfully, patiently, trusting God until the time he gives him the title in his timing. Let's be David's, not Saul's. If the church is run by Saul's, we are in trouble. Because there is nothing more dangerous than someone that has the title but none of the Spirit. David, with the Spirit of God on him, grows and grows and grows more into the king that the people needed but didn't even know they were looking for. How are you doing in this area? Are you experiencing the Spirit of God in your life? Shaping you? Changing you? Transforming you day by day? When we are filled with the Spirit, we become more like God himself. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul writes this list that he calls the fruit of the Spirit. It's the ultimate eulogy virtues. It really is. He says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Here's a question for you. This week, maybe, maybe as you reflect this week, maybe as you pray, maybe as you read Scripture, you might want to just take these verses from Galatians 5 and pray them through and say, Lord, show me what's going on in my heart. Show me where this fruit of the Spirit is growing and show me the areas where I'm not experiencing much of this fruit. And then if you identify character areas, you think, I'm really weak on that. I've made compromises that mean I'm, I'm not strong in that area at all. Ask God because they are called the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit doesn't just go, well, you're rubbish at that one, aren't you? The Spirit says, let me bring it out in your life. Pray, ask God, strengthen me, fill me with character. It's a prayer he is guaranteed to answer if you walk in step with him. Maybe the band can come back up. I know I've covered a lot today. I mean, that's like 16 chapters worth of the story. And basically everything that we have touched on today, we'll unpack at far greater depth as we go through this series. I don't know how you are feeling right now. It might be that some of you feel overlooked. Maybe some of you feel like David. I mean, imagine being overlooked by your father, by the people closest to you. Maybe some of you feel like that today. Maybe you feel like people haven't seen what is truly going on in you because you don't feel like you're glossy enough on the outside. My prayer for you today and through this series is that you would know the voice of God saying, I see you. I see you. Scripture tells us the Lord sees what is in our heart and he rewards us. If that is you today, I pray that you would know that God sees what is going on within you. Maybe you feel more like David at the end of the passage. You feel like you've got a calling, a sense of something you're living for. Maybe the Spirit of God on you, speaking to you, empowering you. But actually, it feels like it's taking a long time to come about. Fifteen years David had to wait guarding his heart. My prayer for you is that you will be filled afresh with the Spirit. Be like that rock solid inner core so that whatever the waves of life come at you, they can't touch you because you are full of God's power. Perhaps you feel today the pressure of living as an Adam two in an Adam one world. Maybe you know you're being asked to make compromises on a daily or weekly basis in work or in your leadership or whatever. Or maybe actually you know you've made compromises already and you're thinking, is it too late? Am I too far down that road? You're not too far. Bring those things to God. He is an expert at mending the human heart. And we would love to pray with you at the end if you would like that for anything at all, anything I've said, anything you've come in just weighing on your mind. We would love to pray with you. There'll be a prayer team who will be available to do that. But first of all, I'd just like to invite us to sing. And we're going to sing a song that is a way of saying, God, right now, at the beginning of this series, I choose to give my heart to you, not to anything else. And so in a moment, I'll invite you to stand. The band will lead us. If you feel like you can sing this song today, then I'd encourage you to do it and sing it as a prayer. Don't just go through the motions. If you are looking at these lyrics and thinking, I'm not sure I can say that today, that's fine. But why not pray in your heart, Lord, would you empower me to be able to say this, to be able to give my heart to you in the coming weeks? Why don't we stand? And Rich and Doug and the band are going to lead us in a final song of worship.
0: Thank you for listening. For more information or for further podcasts and downloads, please visit ChristChurchLondon.org.